Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And my episode today is something I hadn't heard about, but is really, really fascinating. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Dixon. Dr. Dixon is a clinical assistant professor of child neurology at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, she's a proud graduate of Western Michigan University and the University of Michigan Medical School. She completed her residency training in child neurology at Washington University in St. Louis and now practices general child neurology in the inpatient and outpatient settings, directs the neurology elective rotation for pediatric residents, and leads advocacy efforts within the Division of Pediatric Neurology. She's passionate about physician wellness and enjoys navigating new parenthood with her 10-month-old daughter. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sarah Dixon. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well today. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm so happy that you're here. And this is a really interesting topic. It's something when we were talking on the phone and you mentioned TikTok ticks, I had no idea what that was. So listeners, you know, stay tuned because it's a really interesting conversation. So before we get started, I like to ask my guests to share a little bit about their journey into pediatrics and particularly how you got into peds neurology. Yeah. So the field of child neurology, you tend to either come to that path by way of pediatrics first or neurology first. And I myself was neurology first. I just fell in love with the subject matter. My inner nerd comes out <laughs> and I'm thinking about the brain and localizing the lesion and all that jazz. And then I simply fell in love with pediatrics. Pediatricians are my people. Uh, it, it just felt like a natural fit for me. And pediatric neurology in particular has this nice balance of being able to care for generally well children with some neurologic concerns like tics or headaches, but also has the opportunity for thinking about and treating more complicated conditions like rare genetic disorders or complex epilepsy. Oh, so, so did you have to go back and do a pediatric residency then too? No. So it's a combined residency okay. program. So you do two years of general pediatrics training a year of adult neurology training, and then two years of dedicated pediatric neurology oh, training. Wow, you learn something every day. Thanks. Well, I'm <laughs> glad that you're here. Well, listen, we're going to talk about things that tick and some that don't. So I wanted you to at least start with, because I think all of us that are in certainly general peds have seen ticks. Um, it's a pretty common disorder. So Maybe just start with the definition and a little bit about how common they are. So ticks have three core features to them to keep in mind. The first is that they're stereotyped movements or vocalizations. So the movements by an observer are predictable 
in the sense that there's often a small identifiable number of different tick movements and the individual ticks have very little variability between repetitions. The second core feature is that they're usually associated with this awareness of an urge to perform the movement. And we call this a premonitory urge. Um, so sometimes younger kids, like under eight years or so, can have a hard time identifying this urge. Um, and they'll have different ways of describing it. Like some kids tell me that it's kind of like an itch that they just need to scratch. Um, the third core feature is that they're at least partially suppressible. So kids can kind of suppress them to some degree, but in many kids, when they do try to suppress a tick, it'll lead to this increasing buildup of the urge to make the movement. So the three core features are they're stereotyped. They're usually associated with, with a premonitory urge and they're at least partially suppressible. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely, when you're when you're describing, I can definitely see that kid in front of me who's doing eye blinking, for example. Yeah, and they tend to kind of wax and wane over time. So over months to years, you can have different ticks that appear at different times. Others can disappear or recur. And the frequency of ticks can change even during a single day. They tend to improve when kids are really focused and concentrating on something and they can get worse during times of stress, fatigue, anxiety, excitement. Essentially anything that puts stress on the system can bring them out. Whether that's physiological stress like illness or sleep deprivation or psychologic, emotional stress in the negative sense that we typically think of like school demands or interpersonal challenges. But this also includes positive stress, like changes in routine with holidays or vacations. Like I, I remember having one patient who would develop, they called it a tick souvenir because every time they went on vacation, they would come back with a new tick. <laughs> I love that. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, so how, how common are they? I mean, what's the, I mean, just kind of ballpark, what, what's the incidence look like? Yeah. So ticks are present in up to 5% of the population. And the typical age where they come on is usually in grade school, and they can peak in intensity around 10 to 14 years. And so I tend to see middle school being a time of really peak intensity for most kids, which really makes sense when you think about the propensity for ticks to increase when there's stress on the system, right? So throw puberty and middle school drama in the mix, and it's a recipe for increased tick severity for sure. Oh, and but the good news is that the majority of people, like 70%, will outgrow their ticks by late adolescence or early adulthood. So there's some reassurance, but man, for that 12-year-old in seventh grade who's ticking away, that must be uh, really tough, right? Yeah. And ticks can, you know, they're we kind of break them down into a few different classifications. You can have simple motor ticks where it's a single movement or a motor fragment. They're completely complex motor ticks that involve multiple muscle groups or it can be a sequence of movements. And like you mentioned, it, they can include the face, the eyes, neck, shoulders. These are really common locations for motor tics to occur. There's also phonic tics. So these are usually 
some vocalizations of some sort, and they can be subtle. So it, it can be something as simple as sniffing, coughing, throat clearing. Sometimes vocal tics are even initially diagnosed as allergy symptoms. Interesting. Oh, good to know. Well, the other thing I was going to ask you about is, is there is there an association between tick disorders and this kind of kind of OCD? Because I'm thinking about sort of OCD being these compulsions to do certain things, get worse, you know, they sometimes can suppress it. Is there a is there a crossover there? Very much so. So there are some very well established comorbidities that we see go hand in hand with tick disorders. And these include obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, anxiety, and attention deficit disorder or ADD, ADHD. And having ticks doesn't mean you automatically will have these comorbidities, but they are important to screen for because they occur commonly in this population and sometimes can be even more disabling than the ticks themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, since you mentioned ADHD, I think, you know, we, of course, many kids were t- treating with stimulants. And then there's this concern, is the tick related to the Adderall I prescribed? Was the tick already there? And it just, you know, kind of opened the Pandora's box of ticks when I started meds? What What are your thoughts or guidance on that for you know, practitioners? Yeah. So uh, this is a really common question and concern. And I'm always appreciative that people are being thoughtful about how to approach managing these comorbidities in this population. You know, there's fear of worsening ticks with starting um, kids on stimulant medications, but actually having brain chemistry that facilitates better focus and concentration can actually improve ticks for kids with Tourette syndrome. And when selecting stimulant medications in this population, I generally would opt for the methylphenidate class since they are less frequently associated with exacerbating ticks. Ooh, that's a good tip. Well, I guess before we kind of delve into some other questions I have about ticks is what's the thought about where this comes from and why they happen in some people. I mean, 5%, that's pretty common. Yeah. So the etiology of ticks is complex and likely multifactorial with developmental, genetic, and biological origins. So developmental in that there's clearly an age of onset where ticks tend to occur in childhood. So this supports some aberration that's predisposed to occur at this stage in brain development. We know that ticks run in families, or they can, which suggests some genetic predisposition. And the actual proposed pathophysiology results from a disturbance in the corticostriatal thalamic cortical circuit. And if you can say that five times fast, then you become an honorary neurologist. (laughs) Okay. But essentially what that circuit does is control refining your movements. And a disturbance in this leads to disinhibition of movements. So the way I describe this to patients and families is that there are systems in the brain to encourage movement. And there are systems that inhibit extra movements from happening. And the latter is where we think the pathology lies for ticks. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. And I can certainly, you know, the the genetic piece of it 
which sometimes is helpful because if a parent says, oh, yeah, I had them, then maybe they're less worried because, you know, it can be pretty disturbing. And it's, I think, probably annoying, you know, like throat clearing all the time. Um, I had one kid one time that it was involved uh, kind of twisting his neck. And so he had a, he had kind of a neck ache um, and that really bothered him. So there's sort of just the the annoyance of this repetitive movement, but also, you know, physically, is it uncomfortable for some people? So that's really interesting thinking about kind of the why. And as far as pronouncing and saying that whole thing you just said, yeah, neuroanatomy was not my favorite course. <laughs> um, I, but, you know, and certainly in doing just everyday medicine, understanding the brain is uber important. So I appreciate that. Well, here's another question that I think comes up. And what about strep, pandas, and onset of ticks? Is it a thing? So this is a controversial topic among neurologists and psychiatrists about the extent to which this condition exists or not. And it's difficult because, like I mentioned earlier, ticks tend to pop up in the age where strep infections occur and ticks can begin or worsen in the setting of physiologic stress such as illness. So currently, robust evidence is lacking to support a causal link between streptococcal infection and the onset of neuropsychiatric symptoms. Boom, that's it. <laughs> Ooh, this is a, that's a tough one. We won't even go down that road, but yeah, I I know that's a I think partly it's because people want causes for things that make sense and if you can say, "Oh, if it was that strep infection, you know, that makes sense to me that it would trigger that and then maybe there's some treatment for it." Um, I've certainly had kids where there was like an abrupt onset of OCD and it was coincidentally with strep. So it always makes me wonder. I mean, I, I guess never say never. Um, so l let's talk about TikTok ticks because this is new to me. So, so during the pandemic, there was this phenomenon and what's TikTok ticks about? <laughs> Yeah, so TikTok, as many people know, is a social media platform where users create and share videos on individual profiles. And during the pandemic, when we were all honing in on our new hobbies, the number of monthly active users grew astronomically on TikTok. And a quarter of these users are kids aged 10 to 19 years old. And there was this three week period in March of 2021, where videos with including the keywords of Tourette and tick increased to nearly 6 billion views. And these videos demonstrated individuals showcasing really quite severe and debilitating ticks. And neurologists subsequently began seeing an enormous uptick of teenagers presenting with atypical tick-like movements and vocalizations to such an extent that it's now been written up in the medical literature and they've been coined the catchy phrase, TikTok ticks. Yeah. So were some of these videos people that legitimately had ticks and were just showing like, hey, this is my life? Or was this somebody creating this? And then the kids that are coming to see you were they having ticks? Was it imitation? What, what was the thinking there? 
or are we going to really understand? <laughs> I, th- I think it's hard to make a blanket statement about all of them, but, you know, movement disorder specialists within neurology have sort of come together to evaluate the good majority of these videos um, and movements. And these ticks that are seen in these videos are predominantly not representative or typical of ticks that are seen in organic tick disorders. So they are much more severe. They tend to occur as tick attacks where people have dozens of ticks per minute. They are self-injurious. People are often seen throwing objects. These things are really atypical of ticks. And the vocal ticks that people have are, there's a lot of coprolalia that's seen. Coprolalia is the swear word tick, which is something that people think of, you know, it's, it's a way that people with Tourette syndrome are commonly portrayed in the media, but it's actually very rare. And other vocal tics will be long phrases, stringing three or more words together. There was also a common vocal tic that began recurring, which was saying the word beans. No end to the creativity of the human mind, let alone the teen mind to come up with this. Okay. To say beans. All right. Okay. So did you see some of these? Yeah, I did. I I had a patient in residency who came in with explosive onset of new vocal tics. And one of the vocal tics that she had was the beans tick. Wow, that is so fascinating. So what's a neurologist do to sort of untangle this and then explain that this may not be a tick disorder in a respectful way, right? Because it's serving some some need of some sort. Teasing this out, you know, the the ticks that are seen that are demonstrated in the in the TikTok ticks they tend to not be stereotyped like we would expect. They have more variability in what they look like from tick to tick and are less consistently repeated in the same anatomical distribution. And they're usually older adolescents who are developing ticks for the very first time or having extreme exacerbations in later adolescence, which is really uncommon. Um, But these can very much cause distress in the same way that tick disorders do. You know, the pandemic has been a source of stress for everyone and a source of trauma for many. And prior to these kind of exploding on TikTok, these tick-like movements have previously been referred to as functional ticks. And functional ticks fall under a larger umbrella diagnosis of functional neurologic disorder or FND. And this is how I typically describe uh, this for patients and families. Functional neurologic disorder is a subconscious habit-driven or learned behavior that causes distress or diminished quality of life. These are not associated with structural, chemical, or electrical neurologic disorders, but they do represent an abnormally learned motor plan. And these disorders, they often affect kids who are otherwise skilled at quickly learning motor or academic tasks. So the same strengths that allow a child to be an excellent athlete or student 
also allow these children to quickly learn or entrain their brains into performing maladaptive functional neurologic symptoms. And there can be comorbid psychiatric disorders like anxiety or depression. And treating these conditions, particularly if they're triggering the FND episodes, can be helpful. But treatment should also include coping and redirection strategies for the functional symptoms themselves, which is often achieved with cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, it's interesting. I just did a podcast that should air actually right before a couple back from yours on somatic disorders that psychiatrists often see on the inpatient side. And this sounds like it falls into that category. And so that's a whole nother kind of line of kind of approach, really. So if you've ruled that out, I mean, if you're thinking this is a functional disorder, and you know, you're talking to the family, and you're trying to explain it, how successful are you at moving the kids along the trajectory where they aren't ticking anymore? Does it work? I mean, does intervention help? Have you seen that happen? Yes. You know, okay. Yes. So this, you know, in the realm of neurologic disorders and things that we're able to effectively treat, I am really passionate and excited about treating functional neurologic disorder because it gets better. So the treatment does work. Like you mentioned, the first step is being able to effectively communicate what this disorder is so that patients and families have buy-in. And when there is that buy-in, when they do feel like they have a good handle on the diagnosis, they're better able to pursue treatment and the treatment does work. The treatment is often multidisciplinary, meaning there is often a you know, neurology is commonly in, and psychiatry may commonly be involved in the diagnosis. Um, and then treatment moving forward tends to include psychotherapy, but things like physical therapy or occupational therapy can also be helpful. I think that for, for a lot of kids, even just learning about the diagnosis and understanding it, coming to understand it a little bit better is really therapeutic because it can be really alarming or scary when there's something going on in your body that you feel like you don't have control over. So I think even just recognizing this disorder and developing a better understanding of it in and of itself can actually be really therapeutic. Yeah, I would think part of it would be this sort of, you know, the the kid comes away not feeling like I made this up or I'm doing this on purpose, that somehow my body is doing this for a reason. But the the hooker, I think, for this is that it it will go away more easily, perhaps, than other tick disorders. Does that sound right? Do I have that right? Yes. I'm often very reassuring for patients and families that this gets better with treatment. Okay. Because okay. It, it, it really does. It's it's not just something I, I say. It's something that I, I really do enjoy treating because you see kids go from a point of being very debilitated, but with participation and treatment, the, uh, the opportunity for rehab potential is, is enormous, particularly compared to other neurologic diseases. Yeah. Yeah. So always offering hope is kind of a 
that's very helpful for that. Well, I wanted to, because you mentioned a little bit, make sure that we talk about Tourette's and sort of the difference between simple or complex tics and Tourette's. Can you kind of give us a little snapshot of what Tourette's is? And Yeah. So the, there are three diagnoses for tic disorders that we use, and they're based on the type of tics you have and how long you've had them for. So the first diagnosis we use is provisional tic disorder. So this is having one or more motor or vocal tic for less than a year. These are often transient tics that kind of come and go, may not even, uh, you know, make it to a neurologist office, um, but is often recognized by pediatricians. The second is chronic or mo- chronic motor or vocal tic disorder, which is having one or more motor or vocal tics for more than a year, but not having both of them. You reach this threshold for Tourette syndrome, which is having two or more motor tics and at least one vocal tic for at least a year. And we sort of draw this line in the sand when we're defining tic syndromes. It's more likely that they represent a spectrum of conditions rather than unique disorders in and of themselves. The diagnosis of Tourette syndrome can sometimes be distressing for families, but I tell them that really what it means is that you have multiple different tics and you've had them for a long time. Mm, Okay. Well, so that brings me to, you know, I have a patient in front of me who's doing some movements that I think are tics. What's the approach I should take as far as assessment, workup? Is it different if I have a kid that, you know, has a blinking versus the kiddo that is maybe has something like Tourette's? What would be, you know, the steps a pediatrician should take and when should they come see you? So regarding the workup of assessing tic disorders, I think that your history should include the type of tics, the duration, and the frequency to allow you to accurately classify the tic diagnosis. I would make sure to clarify whether the tics are bothersome to the patient, because that is really what steers treatment or not. Um, Screening for comorbidities like ADD, anxiety, and OCD. Because again, these can be more debilitating than the tics themselves. And targeting the treatment of these comorbidities can also frequently help with tics. Your exam would be really just a a comprehensive, complete neurologic exam. I would expect the neurologic exam to be normal in tic disorders. People don't always have tics in the office when you're seeing them, but sometimes talking about them and bringing attention to them in the office can cause them to increase. I would also, you know, focus on the mental status portion of the exam, screening for any kind of encephalopathy or inattention or mood changes, and then otherwise just looking for any abnormalities or asymmetry on their exam. The workup with, you know, imaging, lab studies, you know, imaging isn't necessary if a patient follows the typical course that you would expect for tic disorders. But if there are abnormalities on neurologic exam or other neurologic concerns like encephalopathy or seizures, then I would definitely get a brain MRI. And lab work, there's nothing that I routinely send. Some people will send ceruloplasmin and copper 
due to the potential for Wilson's disease presenting with ticks. But this is quite rare. So I'm wondering, like parents might be really worried, like, is this a tumor? So if I have a kid that has, I would say, fairly straightforward tick disorder, normal exam, would that be something I could say to the parent, let's kind of wait and see, probably not indicated at this time? Is that an appropriate explanation to the family? I think that would, you know, that that is appropriate. In terms of when, you know, what, what that threshold would be to refer to a neurologist, I, I really would say, gosh, whenever you'd like, you know, I've, I've found that families are very appreciative of the ability to sit down with a neurologist to confirm the diagnosis and be able to confidently rule out any other ominous neurologic disease. And if you're seeking pharmacologic management, then that would obviously certainly be another threshold to refer. But I found that even in cases of, you know, more simple ticks where many patients and families aren't actually seeking treatment, there's a lot of benefit in sitting down with a neurologist to have a conversation about ticks. So I I really would have a low threshold to refer. Okay. I, before I forget, I was just thinking in my head and and, and just tell me, is there any association with tick disorders and any kind of um, drug use? Are there any other things that we should keep in mind as a potential cause of ticks? Any medications? I mean, have you ever seen like any marijuana use or anything like that? I, I know marijuana does some weird things sometimes, but have you ever seen anything like that or not really? So you can have um, secondary movement disorders due to exposure to substances or medications. Um, it's not something that I see very frequently, but is certainly something that you could include um, in your history if you're seeing a patient with new onset ticks. Yeah, that's a, a good point. Well, let me ask you a little bit about medication treatment. Um, I, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking about things like clonidine. I know sometimes atypicals are used. Um, in your experience, uh, are they helpful? You know, when do you decide that this might be worth a shot? So the approach to treatment really centers around whether ticks are bothersome to the patient. Not bothersome to the parents, not bothersome to teachers, but bothersome to the child. Because ticks themselves aren't dangerous necessarily. There are some exceptions. You know, I will say that um, I do encourage treatment more readily if there are violent ticks involving the neck due to risk of vascular dissection or any ticks that are causing pain or discomfort from repetitive movements. Obviously, if they're making it difficult for the patient to eat or drink or ambulate, then I'm more readily recommending pharmacologic treatment in those situations. But actually, the first line treatment is non-pharmacologic. It's called Cognitive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks, or CBIT for short. It's formerly known as Habit Reversal Training, and there's really strong data for its efficacy in managing ticks in children and adults. And so in this treatment, therapists help patients to recognize their premonitory urge and develop countermeasures to help shape ticks into something that is less bothersome, or less disruptive or noticeable. And the Tourette Association of America's website, Tourette.org, is a great resource where patients can search for local CBIT providers near them. 
regarding pharmacologic treatments, you know, tick suppression medications do exist. Um, they don't alter the underlying process or progression of the disease, but can be helpful for symptomatic treatment if ticks are causing physical, psychosocial impairment. Uh, and like you mentioned, the first tier agents that we use are the alpha-2 agonists, clonidine or guanfacine. Uh, and so I'll often choose one of these two medications. Um, and then second tier agents that we have to use are the atypical antipsychotics and topiramate is also sometimes used. Now, and of course, those others that you mentioned, I think probably most of us would be reassured if a neurologist was prescribing that. Because, you know, of course, the side effects with atypicals, I think we're all, you know, aware of and the concerns. But yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, the CBT uh, for tick reversal, it's so funny. It reminds me when my daughter was, oh, I want to say eight, she was still sucking her thumb. And so we went to a habit reversal program. And it was kind of a similar, I mean, it's not a tick, I get that. But, it you know, she had this urge to suck her thumb when she was tired or stressed. And so the treatment was, I would like indicate that, oh, you know, you're starting it. And then she would have to sit on her hands for a minute, which is a really long time to sit on your hands. <laughs> you know, a minute's a long That's time. That's a long time at that age. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't think about it until you're watching a football game or something and you're like, oh, a minute, you know, a lot can happen in a minute. <laughs> so it, it sounds kind of a similar sort of recognition of the habit and then doing something that helps you not do that. So um, interesting. I I didn't realize that there was a specific one just for ticks. Who knew? How hard is it to find a CBT person that does that? <laughs> Nobody can see your face, but she just she just made a face like, yeah, it's a really hard thing. <laughs> maybe in the world of tele, maybe in the world of teletherapy, this is a you know a place for where you could find somebody in the country that could do it. Yeah. And that's why the Tourette Association of America website is a really great resource to be able to find um, these CBT providers who are local or nearby. But you could even look more broadly because like you mentioned, people are doing a lot more telemedicine these days. Um, there are also some programs that are online programs. There's one called Tick Helper, which is a self-guided sort of habit reversal training program that you can do, which is kind of nice for people if you aren't in an area where there are a lot of CBIT providers available, or if you have, you know, really rigorous schedule with school and sports, and you want to have the flexibility to do something on your own time, that can be a, a helpful tool. Yeah. Um, well, and it sounds like from what you're saying, you know, again, this tends to diminish over time. What's the likelihood that something's going to persist into adulthood. And I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, you see the Tourette's cases on the movies. How often does that happen where it, it's kind of a lifelong thing? So when we talked about the different definition of tick disorders, I mentioned that really these are all tick, but the ability to outgrow your ticks in, early, in late adolescence or early adulthood does decrease a little bit once you do meet that threshold of having Tourette syndrome. So all comers with ticks, there's about a 60 to 80% of those patients will outgrow their ticks 
once you reach the threshold of having Tourette syndrome, you're on the lower end of that spectrum. So more 60 to 70% of those patients will outgrow ticks. Okay. Well, that's still pretty good odds. So, and that must be reassuring to people too. Better than half. Yeah. Yeah. That's reassuring. Well, listen, this has been really interesting. And who knew about the TikTok? I think that's just, I, you know, you wonder where did that come from? How did that evolve that that would be a thing? I. It's just humans are just endlessly fascinating. (laughs) So, well, listen, I love to close um, with just asking people if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you are a resident or a med student, would you have any advice for yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I I would echo the same advice that I've received about a thousand times since becoming a new mom. And that is that the days are long, but the years are short. You know, I encourage myself to take time to savor the relationships that you grow in residency with your peers and mentors and give some reassurance that those long call mites will actually help prepare you for the real world. Yeah, those are those are tough years. Uh, and you're you're not very far out of that compared to me, but boy, you know, you sort of remember the, the trauma of on-call nights, but you know, it's, it's where we... It's still fresh. <laughs> yeah, it's where you learn sort of what, see one, do one, teach one, right? Mm-hmm. So for the physicians out there, you know that phrase. Well, listen, this has been really interesting and I think really helpful to kind of break down and to think having this, a framework for what this looks like And then the fact that most are not going to need medication. So that's probably a relief to pediatricians and, and that you're there, you're there to help us and to help families. And I I would guess for a lot of families, just a one-time visit with you would be reassuring to them and to us, right? Absolutely. So I appreciate you being out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was really interesting. And again, really unexpected. Who knew how things would take off on TikTok and other social media outlets? I guess it's something we really have to be aware of. So here are today's takeaways. And I've noticed that in doing these takeaways, they're getting longer and longer because there's just so much good stuff. So episode number one. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. This is really, really interesting information and so grateful for pediatric experts and subspecialists. Number two, tick disorders are common and affect 5% of kids at any time. Number three, ticks are characterized by stereotyped movements that are always the same, an urge to perform, also known as premonitory, and partially suspended and partially suppressible. They often decrease less with um, concentration, but become worse when someone is stressed or fatigued. Number four, there are three categories, simple motor, complex motor, and phonic tics. The onset is typically in school-age kids with a peak at 10 to 14 years. They wax and wane in nature and even type and improve over time. 
Think about all those kids you see that have blinking, throat clearing, or humming. I mean, we've all had those kids. Most of these fall into the provisional tick disorders with one or more motor ticks that come and go, or chronic motor or vocal ticks that persist for more than a year. Number five, the cause you ask? It's not clear, but it arises in the corticostriatal circuitry that controls refining of movements. They are developmental in nature with an onset in childhood, have a genetic predisposition, and commonly present with other comorbidities like anxiety, OCD, and ADHD. Are they caused by strep and pandas? Per Dr. Dixon, no robust evidence, and this is highly controversial in the field. Number six, what about Tourette's? Tourette's is a combination of two or more motor tics plus at least one vocal tick for a period of at least one year. They have a higher likelihood of persistence and may be more impairing. Number seven. So what's all this about TikTok ticks? During a three-week period in the middle of the COVID pandemic in March of 2021, there were a slew of tick videos with six billion views of kids with ticks. These were often atypical occurring in bursts or attacks and included a significant demonstration of coprolalia that is not common, especially in sentences, showed many older kids and included an unusual use of the word beans. Not sure what that means, but fascinating. This resulted in a huge number of kids showing up in neurology offices with unusual tick presentations and prompted the publication of several journal and prompted the publication of several journal articles. Check out the show notes for those links. Most of these presentations fell into the category of functional neurologic disorders or FNDs. Number eight, FND ticks are not made up all in your head, but are habit driven and learned behaviors with an excellent prognosis of going away. CBT is helpful. Number nine, assessment as always, is critical. Consider the history, the type, duration, and are these bothersome or not to the kid? That's really critical. Do a good neuro exam and history and a mental health status and history. Number 10, rule out and address comorbid conditions. Again, those are OCD, anxiety, and ADHD. Those are the most common. Number 11, Imaging is usually only needed for positive findings on a neurologic exam. Labs, if any, might be cerebroplasma. Labs, if any, might be a cerebral. <laughs> Labs, if any, might include those to rule out Wilson's disease. Number twelve. Refer to neurology for confirmation, clarification, reassurance and treatment if indicated. It oftentimes is very helpful to the families to have a neurologist evaluate the situation as well. Number 13, if there are comorbidities, treat accordingly. For those worrying about using stimulants, ADHD treatment may actually help with ticks and methylphenidate is preferred over dextroamphetamines. And it's okay to use stimulants, just discuss with the family that there is an association and sometimes there can be some increase in ticks and you can just adjust as needed. Number 14, 
Non-pharmacologic treatment includes CBT, habit reversal specifically for ticks, and sometimes OT and PT. Number 15, are there pharmacologic treatments? Really consider if it is bothering the kid or not. Is it causing impairment or neck pain? Those are really disturbing to kids who might actually have spasms because of head head tilting or neck twisting. In those cases, consider alpha-2 agonists like clonidine or guanfacine. Atypical antipsychotics may also be used, but you might want to consider consulting neurology or psychiatry first. Number 16, on a very positive note, 60 to 80% of kids with ticks will outgrow them. Number 17, check out the show notes for resources from the Tourette's Association and an online self-guided tool as well. As always, thank you so much for caring about kids and for spending time with me today. In February, on February 24th, I will be offering a beta training for up to 10 professionals who want to rethink mental health services that you offer. You can check the details in the show notes and head over to www.medicalbhs for the pediatric for the pediatric meltdown newsletter and free assessment tool. I love to hear from listeners about needs and interests about needs and interests as I search for upcoming guests and welcome your email suggestions and ideas. So please sign up uh, to receive emails. You can also DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown or Facebook at Dr. Leah Gagino. Take care. Have a great week and I hope that you'll join me next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.